Hello and welcome to Co-OpCast, a podcast about cooperative board games with your hosts, Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly. Hi, I'm Peter and I'm here with Mike. Hello, hello. And welcome to episode 10 of Co-OpCast. We made it. And just to celebrate the occasion, we're actually recording on the same microphone. We're in each other's presence for real. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing Codenames Duet. Yeah, so this is a new version or reimagining, I guess, of Codenames. They've come up with a couple different ways of doing it now, but this is the cooperative version. Yeah, so if you're not familiar, the Codename series is from Czech Games Edition, designed by Vlada Chavadl. They had the original Codenames, which was just words. They had Codenames Pictures, which had pictures. And now uh, Codenames Duet is a fully cooperative version. There was a cooperative variant in uh, the other ones. And I think they're coming out with Codenames Marvel and Codenames Disney and yeah, just Codenames Forever. Codenames After Dark. Yeah, or Deep Undercover, I think it's called, which is <laughs> right. even dirtier. But yeah, that's, that's the uh, not-safe-for-children version of Codenames. All right, so Mike, why don't you get into the rules? So I'll be specific to Codenames Duet, and I'll say for pretty much all of this discussion, we're going to be focusing on that co-op-only version. Though in our recommendations at the end, we'll mention uh, how it compares to the other Codenames we've played. So in Codenames Duet, you have a layout of 25 words, and the words have uh, words on the top and the bottom so that both players can see, and you sit across from each other, and you have a card in between you that is double-sided, so one player sees one side of the card and the other player sees the other side of the card, and between the two sides you have 15 green agents that you are trying to identify, so they correspond to spots in the layout of the cards, And then you have uh, several assassins, which will end the game immediately if you accidentally guess one of them. The rest of the board is populated by gray, innocent cards that you're not trying to find but won't negatively penalize you as much as the assassins, the black cards. And uh, you take turns. Either player can start. And you will give a one-word clue with a number. And the number is identifying how many of the cards that you see on your layout correspond to that clue. So if you say icy three, then there are three cards you're thinking of that all have some kind of iciness in common. Your partner will one at a time point to the cards on the layout, and you will uh, either put a green card over them if they were correctly one of your agents, a gray card if it was a uh, innocent bystander, and in that case you have to stop guessing and move on to the other person's turn, or if it's an assassin, you immediately lose. And you go back and forth like that, And the tokens that are used to mark the innocent bystanders are also used to mark how many turns you've used. On easy, you have 11 turns, uh, and then uh, normal is 9 turns. And if you can get every single green card identified while avoiding assassins within those 9 or 11 turns, then you win the game. And let me tell you about two more quick rules. First of all, and this is different than other versions of Codenames... Uh, You can make any number of guesses on your turn instead of just the number that the person has said. And this is useful if you have missed some guesses in a previous turn. So if I said IC3 and Peter pointed to the wrong card right away but then realized what the other three ICs were, I could give him an entirely new clue and he could additionally point to those three IC cards and get those as well. 
The other quick rule is that uh, if you have not found every single agent when you run out of turns, you do get a final sudden death round where either of you can take turns pointing at cards and identifying them as agents or not. It's kind of hard to win at that point usually unless you only have maybe one card left, but it does give you a final kind of Hail Mary shot to win the game. I'm going to quickly go over a couple of variants before we get into our top five lists. One of them is called the looser turn order. And in the looser turn order, you don't have to alternate. It's whoever's ready to give the next clue can give the next clue. All they say is just don't have one player take all the turns in a row giving clues and then the other player. You should really alternate as best you can. But if somebody's not ready, you can have a loose turn order. The other variant is for two or more players. And this is specifically good for our podcast because it is a co-op game and you can play it with, we've played it with three and more players as well. So it isn't just a two-player cooperative game. You can play on teams. The only thing is you just can't discuss things out loud. So you need to whisper to your teammate if you are giving clues or if you're on the guessing side, you cannot reveal information that is on your side of the card. The only other thing I want to discuss is the mission maps. You start off, as Mike said, with nine tokens in the normal base game. And of those, any number of them you can guess as innocent bystanders. So on the mission maps, you start in Prague, and that is considered 9-9, meaning you have nine clues you can give before the end of the game, and any of them can have innocent bystanders. So that second number nine means that's how many innocent bystanders there are. After you finish that, you can change the game up a little by going to any of the adjacent spaces on this map that they give you. So some of the examples are Berlin at 11-2, meaning you can give 11 clues, but only two of your guesses can be innocent bystanders. Cairo is a 9-5, so you can give nine clues like the base game, but only five of them can be innocent bystanders. Or Moscow, which is an 8-8, meaning you can give eight clues, but all of them can be innocent bystanders. And after you complete one of these locations, you can continue branching down a path of similar changes. So, for example, after Berlin, you might give something with nine clues where you can only get two innocent bystanders. Okay, so now we're going to get into our uh, five main points for the game. If you have not listened to our podcast before, we go from the point about the game that we found least important to our most important aspect of the game. And these can be pros, cons, or somewhere in between. Um, We're going to go back and forth. So I'll start. So my first one is a mixed one. And that's that um, there are shared agents on uh, the two sides of the car that you and your uh, partner can see. You each share three green agents, and then you also each have a shared assassin. But an assassin on my side of the board might actually be a green card on Peter's side of the board, and there's some like weird mixing of the cards. Now, making this a mixed one because... On the positive side, it does add to the information you can use to determine what your agents are and who your agents are, and it makes the strategy slightly deeper. On the negative side, this is an incredibly quick game, and Codenames in general is a very quick, simple, accessible experience, and having that extra layer of strategy in a way is actually kind of a negative for me because I don't necessarily want to think that hard. I've already got enough to think about with the clues I'm giving. I don't necessarily want to worry about which greens are also his greens and paying attention to which ones he's guessed. Because uh, the suggestion that the designers have given is that you orient the green cards towards the person who guessed them, which does make it easier to figure out what's going on and, and strategize more. But again, it's adding extra steps to the game and extra complications that I'm not sure actually needed. 
Peter, what was your lowest priority one? Yeah, so my number five is that the game is expandable. We already mentioned at the beginning that there's already code names, code names undercover, code names pictures, Disney's coming, Marvel's coming, and you can add all of those in with this base set. All you really need from this set is that double clue giver card, and you can use any of the sets to combine with this set. So you could use pictures. You can make it the same layout grid with pictures, and you just give clues based on those pictures. So the game is fairly expandable right out of the box. There's already a lot of content out there for you. Not that there's not enough words in the base game. There's tons, but it can easily be expanded. And all of them are very cheap, I think. 20 or $15 standard and then even cheaper online. So yeah, it's not hard to buy more cards and more options if you want them. Exactly. So Mike, what's your number four? My number four is another mixed one. So starting a bit mixed, I guess, overall. And that is uh, the downtime with the game. So if I was talking about regular code names, and we'll mention this again later, but the regular versions of code names, I would say the downtime is a more major issue because it can take a while for the clue giver to figure out what clue they want to give, especially when they're trying to be creative and put together three or four cards all at once. But this game is not as bad because since you are both clue givers and both guessers, when I'm waiting for Peter to figure out his clue, I can theoretically be looking at the board and trying to figure out my next clue as well. But I've experienced that it doesn't always work out that way, so it's still a mixed one for me because there will be times where I'm sitting there for one or two or even three minutes while Peter tries to think of, like, just the right clue. And this becomes worse uh, near the end of the game because sometimes uh, one person will have already given all of their agents and then the other person becomes the clue giver the entire time for every turn. So then it's like a regular code names game where you're only guessing and they are only giving clues if you end up in that situation. Yeah, and that tails right into my number four, which is there can be a lot of AP in this game. And I think the designer on purpose added this looser turn order. So if I'm trying to think of a clue, you're trying to think of a clue, you come up with one, and then I still can't come up with a clue, you can do another clue back to back. I think that will help. Certainly the AP is not as bad as regular code names, but even if Mike's giving me clues... I can't really think about the clues I'm going to give him while I'm trying to guess his clues. So the AP still is an issue in this one because, and by AP, I should clarify this for newer gamers, is analysis paralysis, which means it takes a long time to think about your next move because there is a lot to think about. You're not only thinking about what clues you want to tie together, but you're also trying to figure out what other cards on the table could mess you up, and especially if it's that assassin word. Yeah, and I, we haven't played with that variant, but I do think that playing with that variant would probably change that into more of a plus because the game would move so much faster than regular code names. All right, Mike, so what's your number three? My number three is a straight-up negative, and again, this would kind of apply to the entire code names brand, and that's that it can be very randomly difficult or easy. And this is sort of the nature of the game because you're laying out these random words or pictures depending on the version and then having this random uh, assignment of those cards to agents and assassins and such. Sometimes you'll just have a game where there's a clear, easy clue for like five things. Like every single thing that's an animal on the board is one of your agents. And suddenly you win that game very quickly. In other games you'll have, it'll just seem like nothing goes together at all and you can barely give a one-word clue for a single card and the games are fast enough that that's not a huge problem, but it is still a con just because I can feel less accomplished when I win because I didn't really figure out an amazing clue. It just sort of presented itself. 
And it can also feel frustrating when you lose, and it seemed like there was nothing you could do because none of the clues really worked out very well. Yeah, I don't mind the randomness as much. I think in any co-op game, you have to have some random element. I think we talked about this before with games that were puzzly. This actually ties very well into last week's discussion. I do think you need some randomness, and I think whenever you have randomness, some games are just going to be easier than others. I don't think it's as much of a problem as in regular code names where one team could have a much easier time than the other because it's a co-op. At least it's you against the game, and I don't feel as bad. That's right, so a Peter. What's your uh, third one then? You know, it's funny. My note says little downtime. It's funny because we both talked about AP and how long the downtime was in this game. And what I meant by that is you're always thinking. Even when somebody across the table from you has AP and they're thinking about what clues they're going to give next, you can always look at the table and either think about previous clues you had gotten or what your next clue is going to be. So there's a lot of simultaneous thinking. So even though there might be moments of silence at the table, I don't feel like there's a lot of downtime. Unlike with regular code names, when you're on the guesser side and you have no clues sitting in front of you, you're really just looking at the table or talking with your friends. Whereas in this version, there is a lot less downtime because both people are constantly thinking about clues to give or previous clues. So Mike, what's your number two? My number two is the general accessibility of the game. This is a big pro. So it's cheap to buy, uh, not too many components, quick to set up. Uh, You can play a game of this version in, I don't know, five to ten minutes. Would you say that's about right, Peter? Well, not if you have AP. You might be thinking of a clue for five to ten minutes. But uh, (laughs) yes, you could definitely finish in less than 30 minutes for sure. Yeah, well, I would say definitely less than 30 minutes. Like we're looking at 15 maybe for a medium or longer game. And yeah, it's really easy to teach. I think there's a little bit of complication here that might make it harder to teach than standard code names, but still, it's not a hard game to give the rules for. And you can just get a game very quickly, and I don't think we've ever sat down to play any version of code names, including this one, and not played three or four or five or six times in a row, because it's fun, because it's easy, because it's quick. So yeah, it's just a, it's a great system that anyone can enjoy, casual or experienced. I play code names with my five-year-old son, this version might be a little bit tougher for him, but when he's just the guesser, he can totally get it, and it's a lot of fun. Cool. So my number two is actually a little bit contrary to what you said a minute ago, where sometimes the game is too easy or too hard, and you don't feel like you've made good decisions. I feel quite the opposite. I feel like this game makes me feel really clever a lot of times, and it makes me feel really dumb at other times. I do feel like this game can be very rewarding, even if it's at short chunks. If I get you to guess three or four clues, I really feel smart. And then the next time I give you a horrible clue and you guess an assassin, and we lose instantly. So there really is an emotional swing in this game. And not every game makes you feel that way. Not every game do you always get these highs and lows. And certainly not these quick games normally. I know we talked about games like the Dresden Files card game, which is another 20-minute kind of filler cooperative game. I don't get those swings in that game the way I get in this game, where I feel really smart sometimes, and again, other times I can't even come up with a clue. Yeah, and that swings straight into uh, my number one, which is a big positive, which is how clever you can be with your clues and how much the game makes you feel smart. So notwithstanding my earlier point that the game can be overly hard or easy, depending on the layout of the cards, it doesn't matter. You always feel like you're making cool decisions and figuring out fun things, and there's so many ways to like connect the words together, ways that I don't even think I'm using to uh, their full capacity. 
and you can give like really huge clues knowing that a few gray cards are in the mix and just trust that your partner will eventually eliminate them. Uh, so I'll give clues that are like five or six knowing that a couple of cards are also going to match, but as long as they're not assassins, you can just let it kind of ride. So there's a fun amount of strategy in here. And I think comparing it to other party games like Cards Against Humanity or Apples to Apples, those kind of things, I think you're going to feel so much more clever and smarter here than uh, when you just put in like a single card that's kind of funny in one of those games. Yeah, totally. And we're simpatico again. My number one was your number two. Your number two was my number one. Mine was accessibility. This game is easy to teach. It's easy to learn. And I think something we don't talk about enough is the theme of the game. I know we didn't even really talk about it at the outset during the rules discussion, but the theme of this game is almost non-existent, and it's certainly not offensive. So it's very easy to get anybody to play it. You can just think of it as a party game, and really anybody will take it to the table. You don't really even have to explain the theme. The rules may seem a little complicated as you hear them on a podcast, but if you sit down with somebody and you show them one round of the game, they're going to pick up the rules in no time. So the rules are actually very easy to pick up. It's a game you can start playing in two or three minutes, and anybody's going to get it. And when you have a cooperative version of the game, they're not going to feel so bad if you don't win the first time. Yeah, and a quick honorable mention I wanted to throw in, just because I always appreciate it when games do this, um, the art for the agents has a wide variety of uh, races represented, has a wide variety of genders. Every single character is presented positively and in a strong way, whether they are men or women. So it's a small thing, but I always like it when I can look at a game and see that they were considering such stuff instead of just defaulting to white males or white people in general only. And I'm going to do an honorable mention as well. I actually thought it was going to be your number one. When you said the card's double-sided, I thought you were referring to the clue cards on the table. They have the word facing both ways, which is very clever. So I can see it face up for me, and Mike can see it face up for him. The problem is, on one of the two sides, it is dark black and easy to read. And on the other side, it is very light and gray, and it almost blends in. So I end up reading the words upside down every time anyway. So while I think it was a strong decision to put the words double-sided so that they can face both sides of the table, I also think there's a missed opportunity there. Maybe they could have chosen a different color to make it easier to see from both sides of the table. So on that, Mike, why don't you give us your final thoughts? So I'm going to give my final thoughts in terms of whether you should buy code names and which version you should buy first if you're going to buy it. So I do think Codenames Duet is great. I'm very happy with my purchase, and it's not an expensive game. I will say personally for me, and for some people I might recommend the game to, I enjoy the pictures better, and I like coming up with clues for the pictures better. And the uh, pictures in the Codenames Pictures version are very funny. They're like little mashups of two different ideas thrown together. So um, they're pretty cool. And the nice thing about them is that I can play the Codenames Pictures with my five-year-old, who doesn't read super great yet, and he can totally be a uh, clue guesser and enjoy the game. That clearly doesn't work with the original Codenames or with Codenames Duet, both of which come with only words. That being said, I do think that playing with other adults or even older kids that the fact that you're constantly involved, more so than regular code names, the fact that you have more to think about, that there's more strategy, and that nobody's winning and nobody's losing does make Codenames Duet probably the next one I would buy. 
And my probably perfect, like, best of both worlds would be to play Codenames Duet with the picture cards instead of the uh, word cards that come with the game. But yeah, this is a super great, fun, accessible game. If you don't have at least one version, get one of them, and Duet's a great place to start if you like uh, co-ops, and especially if you're going to be playing with a uh, just one other person. The co-op variant in Codenames and Codenames Pictures works fine. We've played it certainly a whole lot. But this is much more engaging for two people and will keep you uh, on the edge of your seat. All right. Well, I'm going to agree and disagree with you. I think you're right about pictures if you have a younger group. But personally, I prefer base code names or code name duet better. I just prefer the words for some reason. The pictures are either too obvious a connection to me or not obvious at all. But if you're playing with anybody who isn't a strong reader or a younger child, I agree. Definitely pick up code names pictures first. We have talked about this as a co-op game. And I actually think the ideal number for Codenames Duet might be four. That's another place I'm going to disagree with you. I thought it was pretty cool having a teammate on my side, somebody where if I can't think of a clue, and I think this will also help reduce the AP with the game. If I can't think of a clue, maybe my teammate can. And it was kind of cool being able to whisper back and forth, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And it also helps when you have two people guessing on the other side. Certainly it's going to make the game easier. There is no balancing mechanism for it. But I do like the game, and I think at three or four, you can even do two on one side and one on the other. We've definitely done that as well. And I think those numbers work just as well as a two-player game. So high recommendation for me, definitely. Like Mike said, inexpensive price, easy to learn. You could play this game with anybody. All right, so let's quickly get into our design discussion this week, building a brand. So talking about when you already have a game that's successful, like Codenames, building a franchise off of it, building multiple games with the same title. So, Mike, why don't you get us started? Yeah, so first of all, I just want to say from the company's perspective, this makes total sense. In terms of marketing, it's just like when you uh, make a sequel to a movie instead of starting an entirely new movie or do a reboot... You already have the name recognition, you have a built-in player base, and uh, you're going to get bigger sales. So, just to give you an idea of the games we're talking about, like the Legendary and Legendary Encounters series of games, Pandemic series of games, Code Names, you know, there's a lot of people who do this, and generally I understand where they're coming from, from a business standpoint. From a player standpoint, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. If I love a game and just keep on wanting more and more of it, why not? pump out big expansions. From a designer standpoint, when these are really good designers, I guess it could be sort of problematic that they could be designing all new amazing games and they're spending their time sort of doing little re-themes and like slight Chrome updates to uh, a game that's already good. So from a purely design standpoint, I don't know if it's really worth it, but again, hey, more power to them if they're uh, getting success with games. You know, for me, something like Codenames Duet is an evolution of the base game in a way that Codenames Pictures was, although not as much. I feel like Codenames Pictures was a much smaller step, but I do think it's nice when you already like a game and you know you already like it to get an expansion like this. And it's not even an expansion. It's a standalone game, right? So it's a different jumping off point for people. And I do think it's nice. They could have just come out with a box of 50 more words just to expand it. But in addition to all the new words you're getting, because they're all unique from what I can tell, you're also getting different and varied gameplay, but similar enough to the base game where you don't need to learn a whole new set of rules. I like expansions that give you more of what you already like, and it feels like this codename brand, at least, is doing that. And Marvel Legendary as well, 
you can mix and match a lot of those sets together. So I do like when they give you different jumping off points and more content for something you already like. I'll agree with all of that. Um, In general, I think this is something that's fine to do. Uh, One small thing that does annoy me, and this is not, I think, the case with any of the games we've been talking about, but it's very annoying when it seems like somebody has taken the content of a game and cut it in half or a third. Now, don't get me wrong, like when the... You know, Summoner Wars kind of did this. You got these uh, sets of two races tied together, and then you can buy multiple of them. I do see why they're doing it sometimes. Maybe it's too much content all at once. Uh, it might make the game more easy to kind of suck up and buy, because you don't want to buy a $60 board game, but you'll buy three $20 board games over time. But at the same time, it can seem a little bit like a cash grab when, you know, often... It's not a question of three $20 board games or one $60 board game. It's really a question of one $30 or $35 board game or three $20 board games. And when you get into that kind of thing where, like, the it's not about evolving the game, like you were saying, but literally it's just the exact same stuff, just more content released at the same time, just cut into pieces that seem overly priced, that very specific practice can seem a little... Uh, a little bit like too much of a cash grab by the company and sort of uh, potentially making their players bitter. You know, to compare it to, and this is a practice that gets very uh, gets people very upset on the boards every single time a new uh, Fantasy Flight LCG comes out, where you get a bunch of copies of some cards and fewer of others, so that if you want to get an entire card set, you got to buy like three copies of the core game, which is fairly expensive for a game just having cards in it. And then uh, when you do that, like... of the cards are useless to you because you already have the maximum amount. So that's kind of getting off base a little bit, but just if uh, companies try that very specific thing, it can be a little bit bothersome. Yeah, you know, I was going to strongly disagree with you until you brought up a couple of examples. I am going to disagree on Summoner Wars because they had two starter sets, so it gave you two different jumping off points, and if you bought them, you'd have two player mats, which you can actually play a four-player game with, And then after that, they had small little boosters. Whereas something like the core sets you're talking about, though, you're right. That bothers me a lot when they come up with, you have to buy the thing three times just to get a full set of cards. And then you've got 100, 200 extra cards that you can't even use anymore. So it bothers me more in the Fantasy Flight example than it did with Summoner Wars. I do agree. If they could package it into a tighter package, that would be great if you're going to have a cost savings associated with that. But I also think it is nice, especially when you're a new publisher or when you want to put out a new line of games to see how it goes. I don't mind giving people a cheap buy-in point. And then if they want to expand it after that, go ahead and do it. I also want to respond to one thing you said earlier about designers that you love spending their time working on this versus working on something else. I will say, and you've noticed it ourselves, when you do an expansion or when you're building on your current system, it's much quicker to develop. And that's actually another benefit for designers as certainly as well is it is way easier to develop content for a base system you already have. Maybe you're going to add one or two rules, but a lot of the gameplay, you're just building on the content you already have. I think that's also a benefit for players because they aren't learning a whole new game. They can invest more in your game. Hopefully it can all fit in one box so it's less shelf room for them and they get more of what they already love. Yeah, and I guess one final point I'll make, because I, I kind of agree with everything you're saying. I'm getting to the point in my game collection where I sort of prefer to have 200 to $300 invested in a single game that I know I love and I'm going to play a whole bunch, 
and that could be multiple core sets that I'm putting together into one giant box. I'm kind of preferring that to buying like 10 games of middling enjoyment. Yes, there's more variety there, but in a way I'd rather come back to the stuff I love than uh, keep on bouncing around between games that I sort of like. I'd compare it to movies. You know, I'll watch the Indiana Jones series over and over and over again and find tons of enjoyment out of them. And sometimes that's better than watching, like, the latest romantic comedy or some other kind of forgettable movie that isn't really adding much to my enjoyment or my life overall. Yeah, and I'm totally with you on that. And as you dig deeper and deeper into a game, especially now that we're talking about co-op games, as you dig deeper and deeper into a game, the designer can add more and more challenge with each of those expansions as well. So I'd much rather dig deeper into a system, and that's what playing a game 5, 10, 15, 20 times allows you to do is get better and better at it, rather than playing every game as a first-time game and get challenged by new mechanisms, you can master some of the mechanisms and figure out new ways to use them to help you. So I totally agree. I'd rather dig into a game I love than playing a new game just for the sake of saying I'm playing something new. All right. Well, uh, that was a nice little design discussion for you all. Thanks for listening to our 10th episode. I hope you've enjoyed them, and I hope you uh, keep on coming back as we work on the next 10 and beyond. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-OpCast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. We have a little bonus treat for you at the end here. Mike recorded with his five-year-old son Harrison, and I recorded with my nine-year-old son Nicholas just some of their thoughts on the game, and we're going to intermingle them here in the end with the outtakes. I like code names because because it's a clue and it's about to get to the end. Everybody, it goes forever. You can keep talking. Because when I flip it up, I laugh and and it's just so funny. What's so funny about it? It's because the bad card is just, when I flip it over, you say, that's a bad card. And I say, you, and you. I laugh. Do you. Do you want to get the assassin, though, in the game? No, not this time. What do you want to do? I want to win. So what, what's your favorite part of the game? When I win. <laughs> when you win? Go out. All the way to the beginning, and then I just love it. And then we're done. You go all the that's way to the it. beginning. What does that mean? Um, I said that's it, and it's keep on going. I love code names because you're just sitting there, and then somebody gives a random clue, and you like look at all these words, and like, how is this? Like, what matches up to this? And then, like, you choose something, and it's either right or wrong, and it's so much like a mystery. So I guess that's why they named it Codenames. 
The downside for the word part is I have no idea what half the words mean. But the downside for the pictures is um, it's like, what in the world is that? I don't know. It's just always a mystery to me, and it's just so fun. So you like the fact that it's sometimes hard to figure out what the words are? Yes. In each other's presence, for real. For realsies this time. It's super for realsies. They had the original code names, which was just words. They had code names pictures, which had pictures. I feel like I'm being a little (laughs) simplistic here. Thanks, everybody. See you soon.